Good morning. So good to see everybody here this morning. And guests, welcome especially to you. I see a few visitors out there, but good to see our church family back this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, what a blessing it is to be able to open the Bible knowing that it is the Word of God. And uh, obviously we, we know that from a spiritual standpoint, it's changed the lives of millions and millions of people. It's brought people from the brink of suicide to being uh, influential people in society. Uh, It's affected countless lives. We can't even begin to count it. And and did you know that we have over 20,000 manuscripts evidencing that the Bible that was written is the Bible that we still have today? It's not changed, folks. That in itself is a miracle. Uh, So you're there in Philippians chapter 2. Just a few weeks ago, we were in Philippians chapter 1, and so let's just, by way of review, work back through that. I've preached several messages through Philippians 1. The first message, uh, one of the first messages I centered primarily on verse 6, which says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we talked about how... Those of us that have trusted Christ, those of us that are in Christ, He is doing a good work in us. Now, do any of you remember the three points of that good work? They all start with the letter G. What, how do we describe that good work? Can anybody re- remind us? It's one of them's right there in the verse. Good! I knew somebody was just being shy. Yes, it's a good work. Jesus is doing a good work to 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 make us into a person of good works. Uh, what's, what's another one? Can, can anybody else? Gradual. Somebody took notes. I like that, Anna. Uh, gradual work. Yes, it is a gradual work. Notice it said that uh, he's begun it, but it won't be performed or completed until that future day of Christ, that, that coming day. So Christ is in us. It's a gradual work. He's working in us. And every day, we ought to align our will with Jesus so that he can do that work in our hearts. And, and that... Work is reliant on, in many ways, on our submission. And then what is the last G? Are we going to go back to Anna? She doesn't know? Okay. But it's, it's a guaranteed work. Notice, again, it said that this is a work of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't fail. Um, Jesus Christ, for those of you that may not know, the reason we gather on Sunday is because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the fact that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Because our God is alive. The one that brought to us the truth is alive. Muhammad, he's not alive. Buddha, he's dead. No other world religious figure, leader, can say that he rose from the dead. And if you look at the history, folks, I would love to just sit here and explain to you the history the validity of the resurrection, there's no doubt about it that Jesus Christ is risen. Uh, but we don't have time for that this morning. But he's, a, he's alive, and if we have invited him into our hearts, he is actively doing a good work in us. Uh, verse 9 through 11, we talked about the, the engine of that good work. How does God drive this good work in us? Do you guys remember the three aspects, the three, the three main drivers of that engine? It's right there in verse 9. It says that your love, so the first aspect, your love. God uses love to drive this work that he's doing in us. 
Uh, we also noted the word knowledge and judgment or discernment. So God uses a godly love, a love that is rooted and grounded in the Bible, to make us more and more like Jesus. Look, I wish we could go back and see Jesus. We could walk with Jesus. All right, do you remember when he was preaching? When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what the, the people went away saying? They left his preaching thinking, wow, I've never heard someone preach with that authority before. You know the scribes, how they would preach back in Jesus' day? They would say, well, so-and-so, scribe so-and-so, this is what he said. And they would reference this commentary and that commentary. And Jesus said, no, I'm bringing you the truth from heaven. What a claim. And then Jesus backed that up with the miracles. He raised people from the dead. He healed people that were sick with leprosy. That was a death sentence in his day. He did all these great things, proving. He, he even forgave someone's sins. And the, the religious leaders were like, what is this guy doing? Only God forgives sins. Exactly, Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus is God. So God, Jesus, is at work in our lives for those of us that have trusted in him, and he's using this, his powerful love that he displayed. He touched lives, he loved people, he reached out to people. And he wants to instill that love in our hearts and our lives as well. And so that's how he, he moves this good work along. And we see really an example of this good work in the Apostle Paul. We talked about this two weeks ago. Remember, the Apostle Paul, he's sitting in prison. All right, the Apostle Paul, the first great, if you want to call it, missionary of the church. A traveling preacher, he went from town to town preaching about Jesus and establishing churches. And then he is put in prison, all right? He's arrested. And now he can't do that anymore. He cannot advance the gospel anymore, so it would seem. But we actually learned about how the gospel was actually being advanced in his imprisonment. He was sharing the gospel to people that visited him in prison. He was sharing the gospel to the Roman guards that were guarding him in prison. And the, the, the gospel was being spread throughout the palace. These guards apparently were taking the gospel message to other people, sharing the gospel. And so his imprisonment actually throughout Rome, people were talking about this Jew in prison and he's, he's imprisoned because he believes in someone that, that was raised from the dead, this guy named Jesus. And because of his imprisonment, the gospel was being advanced. He was encouraging others to advance the gospel as well. He makes the, the bold statement in verse 21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Here is a man who is physically facing death. He could literally, the next day that he wrote this, he could have been facing execution at the hand of Caesar. And here he says, to die is gain. To die is actually better than to live because when I die, I go to be with Christ. I go to heaven. I go to paradise. But then he says in verse 22, but if I live physically, if I continue to live, I'll continue to serve Christ. Not even 
phased or deterred by imprisonment, he's going to serve Christ until the end. And he tells the Philippians in verse 30, uh, verses 28 through 30, don't forget this. As believers in Christ yourselves, you've been called not just to believe on Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. Following Jesus is not the easy road. It may very well involve suffering. But that didn't deter Paul, and that doesn't deter his message to the Philippians. In verse 27, he says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So the Apostle Paul is saying, let your conversation, your lifestyle, let the way you live be reflective of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. He's made it possible for you to be free from your sin. That's good news. We are locked in this human body, and the, the root cause of our sin is selfishness. We all tend to think about ourselves first. And it starts as a little baby. You ever looked at a little baby? That little baby doesn't wake up in the morning and say, Mom, how do you feel today? Are you a little tired? Did I wake you up at night? I was screaming and yelling. Oh, I should give you the day off. I, should, I shouldn't bother you today. No, you look at a little toddler. That little toddlers, they fight with each other over a little toy. It is ingrained in our human nature to be selfish, to think about ourselves first, and we hurt people by that. As we get older, we hurt people. We say things to people. We, we damage relationships. Hey, look at the world. It's broken. We got wars going on in the world. People fighting each other. Why? Because people tend to be selfish. And Jesus Christ came, and he died on the cross to take our sin away. And if you're struggling, if you're feeling the guilt and the weight of your sin... Jesus came for you. And if you will look to him for salvation, for freedom from your sin, you'll find it in Jesus. And for those of us that have found that freedom in Jesus, in the truth, we've talked about it. This is God's word. We know it's God's word. We've talked about it. Jesus is risen. We know he's risen. Have you embraced him personally as your Savior? Have you truly admitted to God that you're a sinner? That yes, I have offended you, God. I've, I've gone against you. I've gone my own way. Have you acknowledged that Jesus Christ, he came to earth to die on the cross for your sins? Here's the fact. In our sin, we all deserve punishment. That's, that's God's justice at work. God cannot allow sin to go rampant in his universe. It would destroy the universe. So he has to check sin. He judges sin, and rightfully so. He does it to protect his universe, to protect his glory. But he loves us so much, he didn't want us to have to be locked in that world of judgment. And so Jesus, that's why Jesus came. Jesus died for you. 
He died for your sin. So that you wouldn't have to be locked in hell forever in your selfishness and pride. But you can live with Him and experience life the way He intended it. If you will accept Him. Will you admit? Will you acknowledge? And will you accept Jesus Christ? If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that. Even right now, in the quietness of your heart, speak to God. But for those of us that have accepted Christ, He's called us to a life of unity for the sake of the gospel. Notice again, verse 27, Stand fast in one spirit, one spirit, unity, with one mind, unity, one mind, striving together, unity, for the faith of the gospel. He unpacks this plea for unity in chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Basically what he's saying here is if there is this, this amazing relationship, this wonderful, loving relationship that we all have in Christ, as fellow believers, as fellow Christians, we have this encouragement in being united in Christ. We have this comfort that comes from love, this love in Christ that we have. Uh, there is a fellowship, a, a partnership, a ownership, a joint ownership that we all have in the Holy Spirit of God. If any bowels and mercies, if any affection, we have an affection. We have a God-given love. We have this amazing spiritual unity in Christ. Verse 2 says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We have this amazing spiritual union. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So, fulfill you my joy. Paul is saying, look, we have this relationship, but we have to live like we have the relationship. We still live in a physical world. We still live with our human natures. And that's at odds with this spiritual union that we have. Our selfish tendency, our human nature, wants to fight the, the spiritual unity that we have in the church. So there's this tension. And Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, hey, you would make my day if you would give yourself totally over to this spiritual relationship, this unity. How do they do that? That you be like-minded. This is having the same mindset. Having the same mindset, are you, do you have a mindset centered on the gospel? Centered on advancing the work of Christ? Having the same love? This is the same emotion as described in verse 1. Uh, there, this love in Christ, we have this encouraging, this, this loving, this, this camaraderie in Christ. We're all believers in Christ, right? So we have this, this amazing Unity, this amazing love, this, this same love, love given to us by God, being of one accord. This is the idea of, of the same spirit. We have the same spirit. We have the same purpose, the same passion. We are going toward the same goal, it says, of one mind. We're, we're on similar focus. We are focused on advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 27 
striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're talking about. We have this amazing unity in Christ, this amazing relationship. And we ought to then go forward for Christ all together, like-minded. Verse 3 says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. So he's given us the positive, be unified, be like-minded. Now he's giving us the negative, this is what we're not supposed to do. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Basically, it's talking about our, our work for the gospel, our work to advance the ministry of Calvary Baptist Church for the sake of Jesus Christ, ought not be done for selfish ambition. There is no room for self in the cause of Christ. It must all be about Jesus Christ. It's not to be done for vain conceit, for, for self-exaltation, for self-glorification. It's for Christ. And you know what is really amazing? This is an awesome opportunity. You might look at this and say, what? This is terrible. Like, there's, I can't promote myself at all. Like, even a little. Like, where's the, where's the benefit in for me serving Christ? If it's all about Christ, where, where do I benefit? And we live in a consumerist world, do we not? Uh, you watch TV too long, you will get this, you'll get this idea that the world revolves around you. And you need all these things, right? Com- commercials are they're geared to make you want things that you don't even need, right? Who has stuff in your house that you don't even need? You don't even know why you bought it, all right? That's the world we live in. Christ says, no, if you want to experience fullness of life, lose your life for my sake and the gospel. Here's the awesome thing. When we lose ourselves in the gospel, when we lose ourselves for the sake of Jesus, we become a part of a cause that is so much bigger, so much better than, than we could ever be on our own. Do you understand that? If you try to build yourself up, if you try to live for yourself, you might reach here. You might do some cool things. You might make a bunch of money. You might affect, uh, influence some people. But if you give yourself for the cause of Christ, the eternal God, there is no limit. Wow! We get to be a part of that. So it's not about us. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In lowliness of humility, having a, a accurate opinion of yourself. You know someone that, that they've got tall poppy syndrome, right? They think they're a lot better than, than what they are. So I used, to, I used to work at a university, and we, we'd have what we, we call it the field house. All right? It's where we, all the guys went to play basketball. And, it, you know, it's kind of funny watching uh, university-age guys play basketball. You know, some of those guys, they go out there, and, and they wear the LeBron jersey, you know? And they try to act like LeBron, but they ain't LeBron. They ain't nowhere near LeBron, you know? And, and they miss a shot, and like, they just flip out like it's, it's the, oh, I can't believe I missed that shot. I actually missed a shot. It's like, dude, you're, you're not that good, okay? <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? 
they have an exaggerated opinion about their, their basketball ability, right? We need to avoid that. We need to have a humble opinion about ourselves, an, an accurate opinion. Now, some people, I think, they think that humility is anytime somebody gives you a compliment, you just beat yourself up. Oh, you did a good job. With that. Oh, that was terrible. Terrible. I'm, I'm horrible at that. Well, is that an accurate opinion? I mean, you, you don't have to beat yourself up. We're not talking, humility is not beating yourself up every time someone gives you a compliment. A, a better way to respond to that would be say, hey, awesome. Thank you for that compliment. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate the, the talent that God's given me. I know I'm not the best, but, but I, I'm glad that he used me. So humility. Have, a, have an accurate opinion of yourself and reflect the glory to God. Right? That ought to be our mindset. And how do we apply that then to, to the church? All right? We have a lot of different ministries going on. We have the kids' ministry. We have the, the servers in the kitchen. We have the music. That, and it all needs to work together to promote the gospel of Christ. But what happens when the kids' ministry says, we are so important. We ought to have priority, precedence over every other ministry. We need a, a larger share of the budget. We need more teachers. We need to have 10 teachers. You know, it's like we have five kids, but we need 10 teachers. We need, uh, we need, is that, is that an exalted opinion? Right? We need to have a, a humbleness. Okay, I can't believe that pastor is taking one of my teachers to go, to go serve in the kitchen. It's not like they need more people in the kitchen. So if, if that's Veronica, and I'm not calling out Veronica, I'm just saying if, if that's her mindset, I can't believe pastor is shuffling around the personnel at this church. I'm going to have to talk to him. Uh, is that lowliness of mind? What is that doing? That's, that is bringing tension into the ministry. It's detracting from exalting the cause of Christ. And it's bringing in, well, is it strife, vainglory? Our, our first response ought to be, well, hey, do you need some help in that area? Fine. We, we want to help work with you in that area. We want to help assist in that area. Let's all work together to make sure that we have enough teachers, we have enough people in the kitchen, we have enough people doing all the ministries, working in kids' club, in the youth. Let's, let's work all together to make sure it's, it's all going to happen and the cause of Christ is going to be advanced. Verse 4 expounds on this. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The idea here is being preoccupied. Are you preoccupied with your own things so much so that you can't recognize someone else needs help? If you're so preoccupied with your ministry that you're not praying for the rest of the ministry, are you looking on other man's things or on just your own things? So what is he doing? What is Paul saying? He's saying we have this amazing relationship in Christ, this unity, this love. Let's be like-minded. Let's go toward the same goal, advancing the gospel, advancing the cause of Christ. Let's not get personality into it. It's not about us. 
It's not about our ministry. It's about the cause of Christ. And let's work together. Let's, let's look on other people's things, their interests, their concerns, with more deference than on my things. You know what happens when you help other people? They help you. I don't know how to explain it, but when you step up to the plate and you say, hey, I'm willing to help, God brings along someone else to help you. The people that you help, they're like, oh, hey, he helped me. I'll help him back. You know what happens? And all it takes is one person to start it. And step up and say, I'll, I'll help. And someone else will look at, hey, that person stepped up to help. I can help. And that's when we, we take the spiritual relationship that we have and we put it out into the church, into action. People helping people, working together, advancing the cause of Christ. So Paul, following up his, his statement in verse 27 on striving for the gospel, he, he tells us, he explains to us this unity. And then through the rest of chapter 2, he gives us four examples of unity, four pictures of unity. In verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the first example, Jesus Christ himself, no better example. This is what Jesus did. It says, Jesus, who being in the form of God, so Jesus, he was God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made claims that, that I, am, I am God, I am divine. It wasn't robbery. It wasn't wrong for him to say that. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation. That idea of, of, of selfish ambition, that, that idea of, of striving for fame and popularity. Jesus wasn't about being Mr. Famous. Took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. God himself, entering into his creation. Can we fathom that? You know, this would be a very bad example, but, but let's say, let's say that, that Ricardo had an ant farm, all right? He had this nice big glass aquarium, and he put all this special dirt in here, and he's got his little ants, and he can watch his little ants as they run around, and he puts a little food out there, and he's got this ant farm. And every time somebody comes over to the house, he's, oh, i got to see my ant farm. Really cool ant farm. Let's say one day, Ricardo saw that his ants weren't doing too well. <coughs> they needed some help. They needed someone to go in there and, and give them some instructions and, and, and fix the colony. He were to say, oh, I'll become a little ant. And I'll go in the, the ant farm. Become a little, little tiny ant. To serve that, that ant colony. That, that, that's not a, really, it's not a good enough illustration, but any of us willing to become an ant? No. A little ant, a little thing running on the ground, you step on it. You don't think much about it. Jesus Christ, God himself, came down to this earth to become a part of this sinful world, to experience the pain, the suffering, 
You know, some people will say that, how can there be a God if there's suffering in the world? But get this, Jesus Christ on the cross took the ultimate suffering for you. You can't blame God for allowing you to go through suffering that you caused through your sin. Especially when you realize the fact that he died on the cross. He took the ultimate judgment of God in your place. That's what it says. Verse 8, he being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But what happened in verse 9? Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Why is it when the name of Jesus is mentioned, something happens? Have you ever been out in public? And as soon as you bring up the name Jesus, why do people use Jesus' name as a swear word? They don't say, oh my Buddha. What the, Muhammad? They don't say that. They use Jesus' name. Why do, why, what is it about Jesus' name? It's because God has highly exalted him. He has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humanity is steeped in sin, and they know Jesus Christ stands for righteousness. So they don't like his name. They use his name flippantly. But there is coming a day in which those same men and women that have used his name flippantly, they will bow before him. And they will have to acknowledge that he is Lord. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to stand before him and acknowledge him? Yes, I acknowledge you wholeheartedly, happily as Lord. Or will you have to stand before him and begrudgingly, not happily, not because you want to? Will you have to admit, will you have to be forced to admit that he is God? I hope that's not the case. I hope that you make things right with God before it is too late. God offers his love for you right now. If you will acknowledge him on this side of death, you can anticipate a joyful meeting. But if you don't make things right now, I warn you, I encourage you, I urge you, to think about what will, what will happen when you stand before God as his enemy. Jesus, though, is the perfect example of unity. He went to the, the worst death on the cross, the excruciating pain of the cross, the humiliation, the public mockery. He did so willingly. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's recorded that Jesus prayed, let this pa- cup pass for me. Jesus is praying, I don't want to go to the cross. But then he says, not my will, but thy will be done. 
He was in total unity with the will of the Father. He didn't argue. He didn't complain. He didn't bicker and fight. He was in unity with God. Verse 12, how do we apply this to our lives? Wherefore, so in light of what we've just read about Jesus, my beloved, talking to the Philippian believers, as ye have obeyed, not in my presence only, but now also much more in my absence, work out your own fear with salvation and trembling. So what is the response? Our response is to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The word work out means to bring to completion. We're not talking about working for salvation, working for God's forgiveness. Because we can't earn God's forgiveness. Our, our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. We cannot reach his level of perfection. For all have sinned and come short of the glory, the perfection of God. And, and the Bible clearly says that, that wickedness will not dwell with God. He's not allowing any sin into his kingdom because it would defile his kingdom. It would defile heaven. So you have to have absolute per perfection to make it to heaven. And the way we do that is by embracing Jesus and embracing his righteousness by faith. So we work out, not work for our salvation. We, work, we bring to completion our salvation. Now, what is this word salvation referring to? Many times in Scripture, salvation refers to forgiveness of, God's, of sins from God. And that is an accurate depiction of salvation. Uh, oftentimes, salvation in the New Testament refers not just to the act by which God forgives us, but also the ongoing work that He does in us to sanctify to, to remove sin from us on a practical, daily basis. But sometimes the word salvation, the word simply means to rescue or to, to, to deliver. It does not necessarily have to mean eternal salvation. In fact, first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, the Apostle Paul uses the word salvation, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. Remember, he's in prison. He's talking about his rescue, his salvation from prison. So he's not necessarily talking about his eternal salvation. He's already saved. The Apostle Paul was already saved. So what is, what is the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, referring to? In the context, we've just read about Jesus. How Jesus yielded himself in unity to the Father died on the cross, and God rescued him out of the grave. God exalted him above every name. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we look at this verse and we think that the Apostle Paul is speaking to the individual Philippians, on an individual level, we might think that we have to complete, we might have to work out this salvation. But I believe he's speaking to them as a collective, that's the context. The context is saying, be unified, be like-minded, all work together. So in verse, 13, we come, or verse 12, we come to this viewing it as, as a, a collective. So God is telling, Paul is telling the Philippian church collectively to work out their own salvation. It probably has individual implications, but think about it this way. Paul is telling the Philippians to submit 
to God's work in your life. To unify your will with God's, just as Jesus did. Because God is wanting to work through you. He may allow some suffering. Back to verses 29 and 30, it says, you may have to suffer for Jesus' sake. But that suffering is God working in you, just as he worked in Jesus, to bring to completion the work he's doing in you, so that he can exalt you, just as he exalted Jesus. With fear and trembling, when we realize that God wants to work in us the same way he worked in Jesus' life, wow, that ought to produce some fear and trembling, some awe, some wonder, some amazement. Who are we that God should work in our lives the way he worked in the very Son of God? Who are we that God should exalt us to, to receive the inheritance that he has given us with Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, it was God's desire to exalt us to the, the, the position of being sons and daughters of God. In verse 10 of Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. That is God's intention for us. To complete our salvation by exalting us with Christ in heaven. Verse 13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here is the, the tension. In verse 12 it says that we are to work out, to complete this work. But in verse 13 it says God is the one that is working in us to do this great thing that, that is his pleasure to do. So who is it? Do we work? Or is God the one that works? And the answer is both. The answer is both. The work that God does is internal. Remember, Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God's work, the work that he's doing is spiritual. It's internal. It's within us. To transform our character. To make us more like Jesus in his love, in his compassion, in his righteousness, in his purity. And the work that God does in us produces an outward work. That's, that's where we come in. That's our work. Our work is the external work. Our work really is the submission to the Holy Spirit, to the Word of God. Our work is really just following the Holy Spirit, following God as He guides us. When He tells us something from His Word... We obey, we do it. 
Just like Jesus, God told him what he wanted him to do, and he followed it step by step. Verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Complaining, griping, whinging. Do you complain about the work that Christ is trying to do in your life? When you suffer a little, do you complain? When things are a little inconvenient, do you whinge off to your mate? Think about the children of Israel. They were always complaining. Moses, I mean, that guy must have had to take a bunch of heart, uh, heartburn pills because, like, all the stress and anxiety those people gave him. Always complaining, oh, we're going we're gonna to die of thirst, Moses. What are you doing? Should have gone back to Egypt. Right? What did God do? He dealt very severely at times with their griping and complaining. Because their griping and complaining, ultimately, they, they were going up against the leadership that God had put. They were ultimately going up against God. Saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, why are you, why are you doing this? You know, when we complain about the tough times in our life, we better be careful. It very well may be that we are rebelling in our heart against God. It may very well be that God is trying to do a wonderful work in our life. And we're not even seeing it. Because we're so focused on how we feel. We're so focused on the immediate circumstance. We can't see the end goal. And uh, by the way, the more we complain, the more God has to allow the same trials in our life to teach us. <laughs> so my encouragement to you is learn the first time so you can get on to the next lesson. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Arguing with one another. Hey, we're trying to move the gospel forward here at Calvary Baptist Church. We don't have time to argue with one another. Oh, I like this color of carpet versus that color. The flowers need to be on this side of the platform, not the... You know what I'm talking about? Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. What is the end result when we who are united spiritually in Christ, filled with his love, when we unify of a like mind to advance the gospel, to, to move forward the, the cause of Christ, in Bayswater, Victoria. And like Jesus, we humble ourselves, we yield ourselves, we align ourselves with God's will. And we have unity. We don't argue. We don't complain. What happens? We stand as lights 
in the world. We attract the world to the truth of Jesus Christ. They see a church that loves one another, that cares for one another, that is working together, that, that is just an awesome environment to be in, and they see the love of God at work. And that light attracts those that are in the dark, holding forth the word of life. We are a testimony to those around us. So Jesus is the first example of unity. The second example of the four would be the Apostle Paul in verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may run, rejoice in the day of Christ, that I had not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. The Apostle Paul had given himself to the service of Christ. And in unity, he had poured out his life, not just for the Philippian church, but for others. And we ought to be the same way. Can you say today, can you say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain? Is the reason that you are alive to advance the gospel of Christ? If the answer is yes, then let me ask you the, uh, another question, a follow-up question. Does your schedule indicate that is the case? The time that you have been given by God, are you using it in a way that God would say, yes, I approve? Or is there a lot of selfish ambition built into your schedule? If we were to look at your, well, you go through your own personal life. Can you really say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ? The time that you have, the, the resources you've been given, all those things. If God is reality and Jesus Christ is God, the most important thing in, in the world, the most important thing that we have is our relationship with Jesus. It's not our clothes. It's not our, our retirement account. It's not our house. It's Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he gave it all. Apostle Paul didn't have any fancy, fancy mansion. He didn't have a retirement account. He worked a double shift. He was a tent maker, preaching and, and, and working. He suffered shipwreck. He was beaten how many times? He was stoned. He suffered how many persecutions? He was imprisoned. Can we truly say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ? Apostle Paul is the second picture of unity. The third one is Timotheus, his, his apprentice, so to speak. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, 
that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. That For I have no man, there's that word again, like-minded, who will naturally care for your state. Praise God for Timothy's. Men and women who will stand with a pastor, with the church, and they'll be like-minded. They won't be the ones causing division. They won't be the ones complaining about this, that, and the other. They'll be the ones saying, Pastor, what do you need? And before he can even say it, they're already doing it. It says, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Timothy, he, he cared for these Philippian and the Apostle Paul knew that he could trust him. Uh, in verse 22 it says, But ye know the proof of him, or, or the evidence that he has been a reliable helper in the gospel, that as a son with the Father he hath served me in the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, I can send him to you, knowing 100% he's going to do well to minister to you. But back up to verse 21, it says, For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Unfortunately, it would seem for every Timothy, there are a good deal more who are not like him. Many who seek their own rather than the things which are Jesus Christ. Are you a Timothy this morning? Or are you like verse 21, where you seek your own? You know, we could be a great encouragement to pastor if we would fill out those forms and say, Pastor, I'm willing to help. I'm, I've got your back. I want to help move the mission. I want to help move the gospel forward here in Bayswater. Pastor, I want to help. I want to help with the vision that God has given you so we can reach people for Jesus Christ. Are you a Timothy this morning? And then the last example, verse 25. <clears throat> a man named Epaphroditus. How would you like to have the name Epaphroditus? <clears throat> You'd probably get abbreviate, uh, a nickname pretty quick. Uh, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger that he ministered to my wants. So this man is a friend of Paul. He's a co-laborer in the gospel, a minister with Paul. But he's also from the church of Philippi. It's the, he's the messenger that came from Philippi to give Paul the gift that uh, Paul mentions in this letter. It says in verse 26, For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness. Now get this, because that he had heard, because ye had heard that he had been sick. Okay, did, did you get that? He longed after you all. He was concerned for you. Why? He was full of heaviness. He's really concerned because you had heard that he was sick. That sounds a little backwards, right? The sick person was concerned for the people that were well. Does that make sense? Normally, it should be the people who are well are concerned for the sick people, right? Does that make sense? Or did I just totally confuse you? I'm seeing a lot of blank stares out there. So the person that was sick was concerned about the people that were well. Normally, it's the other way around. 
Think about having a heart like Epaphroditus. I wonder, was Epaphroditus so caring, so like-minded with the church of Philippi? Just, he, he's one of those guys that was just on board with the church. He was all out for the church. Hey, for crying out loud, the man went from Philippi to Rome to take, take Paul a gift. That was not an easy uh, ordeal back in that day. He was committed to serving Christ. And he had such a care for people that when he was sick, he was concerned that they would be fearful that he would die. Oh, they must be, they must be really sad hearing that I'm sick. They must be really sad knowing my condition. I don't want them to be sad. I don't want them to be, to be fearful. What in the world? Does that kind of shock you? Like it's, When we're sick, who, who here, when you're sick, the first thing on your mind is, I hope people don't know so they don't feel sad. Normally it's like, I want someone to call me. I need someone to come help me. I need some, right? When you're sick, you typically, you're, you're pretty concerned about your condition. Verse 27 says, For indeed he was sick nigh to death, but God had mercy on him, and not on, on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So God spared him, thank God. Verse 28, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. So he sends him back. Verse 29, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Hold such in reputation. Hey, you need to acknowledge this man, because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me or, or to send this gift that you had been, um, it had been a long time since you'd sent me a gift, so, so he, he brought this gift to me. So we have this man, Epaphroditus, who cares for people so much that when he's sick, he's still concerned for others. We have this, this man, Timothy. He's not worried about seeking his own. He's... He's really primarily concerned at assisting the Apostle Paul. Because as the Apostle Paul followed Christ, Timothy followed Christ. And so he was concerned to help this man, Apostle Paul, with his ministry so that the cause of Christ could be advanced. Obviously, we have the Apostle Paul, but most importantly, we have the example of Jesus Christ. And all four of these examples... They were committed to doing the work of God, selflessly, putting self aside, focusing on others. I, I think these men, as it says in verse 2, they were like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. They weren't striving for vainglory. They viewed others as more important than themselves. They looked on the interest of others more than on their own interests. And they were unified for the gospel. I want to ask you again this morning, 
can you say in your heart, I'm unified? I'm unified with, with Pastor Manny, with, with Brother Tim. I'm unified with Calvary Baptist Church. I'm unified for the sake of the gospel to go forward in Bayswater. I, I have that heart of Timothy. I want to help. I want to assist. Epaphroditus, I, I, want to, I, I care for other people more than above my own needs. Are we unified? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, the love that he displayed, the life that he showed. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here that hasn't accepted his gift of salvation, so they can know that their sins are forgiven, that they're on their way to heaven. Lord, I pray that they would accept him even today. Father, for those of us that have accepted you, would you help us to seriously consider this concept of unity? Father, I thank you for all the ways in which we see unity exemplified in this church. Lord, there are many people we could list name after name of people that are contributing. But Father, we do know that unity can be a fragile thing. And so Lord, we pray that you protect the unity, that you would grow the unity, that more would join in to the unity so that we can advance the gospel of Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you've heard this prayer, knowing that we're praying it in the name of Jesus Christ, according to his will. We know that you've heard it. And we look forward to seeing how you are going to bring about even greater unity through all of us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.